Come on down to Narangong, where narrow-minded folk belong. Bring the kids, it's a bloody good place to be. There's a bakery and a primary school, a decent pub and a public pool. There's a roundabout and a bloody good petting zoo to boot. So come on down and grab a beer. You can stay if you're from here. And if you're not, you best be moving along from Narangong. You can't. G'day, cunts. Welcome back to another instalment of the Oral History Project for the charming southeastern South Australian town of Narangong. Earl's back in the studio today. Earl, you'd be pleased to know that this story features your lawyer, Marshman. Marshman, of course, is representing Earl in his ongoing legal drama. What is it? Speeding ticket. Are we still going with that, mate? Don't, don't leave, mate. I'm just having a go. What? Oh. That's too bad. Anyway, the, uh, the story is also a bit of a mix between England and Australia, which is also not unlike the investigation into good old Earl, which has now taken on an international aspect. We've had Scotland Yard sniffing around here recently. It, it does seem strange that Scotland Yard would be investigating traffic tickets, but it sounds to me like maybe it's something bigger. Just between us and these four walls... I think Earl's managed to get himself mixed up in some sort of, of foreign logging operation? Smuggling of endangered timber, maybe? That's what I'm surmising, anyway. That These Scottish blokes were going on about oak trees? Birch trees? I don't know. Anyway, without further ado, it's Sharon. Things were not going too bloody well for Sharon. For starters, she was in England. Making matters much worse, she was English. Perhaps because of this sad state of affairs, her boyfriend, Alan, had told her just this morning that he preferred a life of lager lads and loose women to the predictable monogamy in which they had been engaged for the past two years. She said she'd go stay with her friend Janelle for a while. He promised to bring her mail around in a week or two. If these burdens were not enough to make a pommy bird turn to Pims in a weekend of EastEnders reruns, she learned that the cuts to the higher education budget would lead to the closure of various university libraries, and with it, the loss of her job as an assistant librarian at the local uni. Sharon sat at home and cried. She continued to cry, with periodic breaks to walk to the shops for more pims and to put on the next season of EastEnders, until Alan came by a week or two later to deliver her mail. Along with the phone bill, her second-to-last paycheck, and assorted junk mail, there was a letter from one Samuel P. Marshman, Esquire, of number 11 First Street in Narangong, South Australia. I regret to inform you of the death of your great uncle, Gerald G. Gardner. It began. Jerry died rather unexpectedly last week while digging an irrigation ditch. He was 97. She had spent a lot of her childhood hearing about great uncle Jerry. He was a great man by all accounts, a wealthy landowner in one of the most fertile and productive parts of Australia. His letters described the bustling cosmopolitan rural utopia in which he lived, and Sharon spent much of her dreary English childhood wishing fervently that she would one day visit Narangong. As you may have known, Jerry died childless. Not for want of trying, mind you. Every chance he got down Murray Bridge for the show or with the Sheilas passing through town of a Friday night, but to no apparent, or at least no legitimate, avail. Sharon struggled to fathom the relevance of this disclosure to her, personally. 
But I digress, the letter continued. Jerry died childless and unmarried. His brother, Jeffrey, whom Jerry frequently described as a pompous, pommy-loving cunt, was his closest relative. As you may know, Jeffrey died some years past. Sharon recalled the death of her grandfather and permitted herself another small cry. And I am sure you are aware that Jeffrey's only child, Gregory, died an untimely and grotesque death some 14 years past. Sharon was 16 when her parents had died. Half an hour later, half a box of tissues and a few beers deep, she felt strong enough to continue, leaving you Jerry's closest living heir. She paused to take a sip of lager and consider the sentence. Jerry's closest living heir, it continued to say. The letter continued in other ways. It continued to say that she was to be named the sole beneficiary of Jerry's estate, that any bequeathment was subject to certain conditions to be specified at the reading of the will, and that the will would be read seven days hence at the offices of Samuel P. Marshman Esquire, number 11, First Street, in Narangong, South Australia. It continued also to say that Mr. Marshman had enclosed an airplane ticket for travel to Adelaide and a bus ticket from Adelaide to Narangong. The plane left in two days. Well, she thought, this is unexpected. Two days later, Sharon spent a third day travelling to Adelaide. She spent the better part of the fourth day travelling by bus from Adelaide up past Mount Barker and Murray Bridge and out into the rolling hills that nestled Narangong. Tired from the journey and ready for a hot shower and a soft bed, Sharon stepped from the bus and made straight for Narangong's preeminent hotel, the Rear Admiral Hindmarsh. As on any Friday evening, it was crowded. Sharon dragged her rolly suitcase through the doors, past the tables and up to the bar. She caught the publican's eye and asked, in her most pleasant manner, if he had a room available. The man squinted back at her. How's that, love? A room, she asked again. Yeah. The sign said that this was a hotel. She tried again, in exasperation. Exactly, love. You want a beer? No, Sharon responded, although she was beginning to doubt her answer. I'm looking for a room for a few days. All right. You've come to the wrong place, love. This is the hotel. You'll be wanting to try the motel. But I'm pretty bloody sure Bernie's all booked up with the hay-raking convention in town. Sharon was crestfallen. The publican poured her a sympathetic beer as he asked, Come on, love. It can't be that bad. What are you doing in town anyway? My great-uncle died, she began, staring morosely into her beer, and I'm to attend the reading of his will in a few days. The publican perked up at this. What's your name, love? Sharon looked up and gave a small smile. It's Sharon. Shazza! The publican grinned back at her. Well, it's a bloody pleasure to meet you, love. Yes, Sharon said. A pleasure, but it's Sharon. Bernie! The publican roared across the pub to a small round man playing darts. Bernie runs the motel he explained more quietly to Sharon, before returning to his across-the-pub voice. This is Jerry's grandniece, Shazza! Actually, it's Sharon, she began, but stopped as half the pub turned to inspect her. Oi, Shazza! Bernie held out a calloused hand. Nice to meet you, love. Sharon took his hand and started in again. Nice to meet you also, but it's Sharon. Shazza's looking for a place to stay until they read Jerry's will on Monday. Bernie inhaled through his teeth. Yeah, tricky that. We've got the hay-raking convention in town and I'm all booked up. Won't have any vacancy for a couple of days, really. Sharon looked despondent once more. Now, Shazza, don't look so bloody sad. You ought to try Australian Charles Darwin out at the petting zoo on Virgo Road. He's not long ago put in some guest quarters and a flash dunny with that home-and-away money. Not one word of this made sense to Sharon. 
Four beers later, it made no greater sense, but she felt a lot better about it. And so it was that Sharon found herself standing outside a petting zoo, looking for a place to stay. Monkeys are known for many things. They're mad for bananas, obviously, and they are pretty bloody good at climbing trees. Less well-known, known only to Australian Charles Darwin, really, until he'd introduced the home-and-away watching public to the concept, is their ability with the written word. The next morning, Sharon discovered another characteristic. Monkeys wake up at the crack of bloody dawn and are excited to do so. The pillow stuck to the side of Sharon's face as she sat up. Her eyes weren't fully opened yet, but her ears were filled with a terrifying scream. Her bedroom, the primate suite, had one large window that looked out into what could have been a peaceful jungle scene. If peaceful jungle scenes contained typewriters, heavy crystal ashtrays and tall leather-backed chairs. Sharon was in no place to appreciate this curious tableau because on the other side of the glass, blocking the view and not six inches from her face, an enormous mouth was stretched wide into its best impression of a banana's nightmare. Australian Charles Darwin could cheerfully explain the reasons why a chimpanzee's scream sounds so exactly like a human's. Shared DNA in the tonsil regions played a role, a common history of being the softer, less toothy options in a voracious jungle also. All of which would have been lost on Sharon, who was mostly concerned with the sound that six million years of evolution had tuned to the harmony of pure, bowel-loosening terror. Sharon screamed back, <coughs> rolled away from the terrifying sight, and fell out of the narrow bed with a thump. Picture window, that, said Australian Charles down from the doorway as the chimp continued screaming. Just built the accommodations last month, he explained over the noise and I wanted the guests to really experience the creative process. The chimp stopped screaming and began smearing shit across the window. Sharon, her mouth agape, stared at the chimp for a moment and then looked back up at Australian Charles Darwin. Tea's on, he announced happily before turning and leaving the room. Breakfast was a relatively uneventful affair. Sharon, shell-shocked from her wake-up call of the wild, had difficulty drinking her tea without spilling and inadvertently threw a slice of Vegemite toast across the kitchen when the phone rang, but she began to feel a little better as she got some food into her. After breakfast, Australian Charles Darwin had promised to take her on a tour of southeastern South Australia's premier petting zoo and centre for evolutionary studies. Sharon couldn't quite tell what she was meant to be looking at. They toured about half of the petting zoo as Australian Charles Darwin explained the evolutionary heritage of each animal. You bilby, he explained. Now you go back far enough to when there was the land bridge between Queensland and Papua New Guinea. There was a much greater uniformity among the species of Southeast Asia and Australia. Once that closed off, you had your isolation of Australia from the rest of the world, which led to allopatric speciation. The unencumbered evolution of Australian flora and fauna cut off geographically from other areas as they adapted to the unique conditions here. Right before that happened though, a wallaby fucked a rat, and there's your bilby. Sharon had been puzzled by this, but before she had an opportunity to inquire into the details of the bilby's provenance, Australian Charles Darwin whisked her along the path to the next animal display. It was this next display that was causing her confusion. Australian Charles Darwin pointed again and nodded encouragingly. She tilted her head. Australian Charles Darwin tried to give her a clue. It's a dog, he announced. It was a dog. It was a pretty decent sized Rottweiler, asleep in a ratty dog bed on a porch that looked 
for all the world, like Australian Charles Darwin's back porch. Sharon still looked confused. It's my back porch, he explained. Sharon nodded. And does the dog play some special role in the evolutionary history of Australia's unique flora and fauna? Her confusion had put her on edge. Did this particular dog evolve from the chance encounter between a carnivorous dinosaur and a fleet-footed early hominid? Surely he's spawned some new genetic hybrid? What? Australian Charles Darwin said. Nah, he's just a bloody dog. His name's Phil. Australian Charles Darwin, unimpressed with this lapse in logic, scratched the back of his head and furrowed his brow in Sharon's general direction. She blushed a little in embarrassment. And I had him fixed. Australian Charles Darwin took her now towards the most popular part of the petting zoo, the kangaroo enclosure. Young kids loved their visit to the petting zoo, and what they loved more than anything was feeding these kangaroos by hand, rubbing their soft fur and watching the mums hop around with the humorously oversized Joey still insisting on catching a ride in her pouch. Australian Charles Darwin had started with just one roo that he'd picked up off a mate, but he'd added a few more over the years. A while back, when the big bushfires had come through and left most of the land between Narangong and the coast looking like a piece of burnt toast, the CFS had picked up four little joeys on the side of the road and brought them by to recuperate. Australian Charles Darwin had nursed them and bathed them and hung pillowcases for them to sleep in, curled at the bottom like they were safe again in their mum's pouch. The school had had a competition for the kids to name the joeys, Tony, Claire, Bronson and Cornetto. They'd painted four nameplates to hang up on the fence alongside the simple stencils for the other three roos. The roos were lying in the shade of a tall gum, scratching in the dirt and blinking slowly. I count six, she said. Where's the other one? She knew she'd said something wrong. Australian Charles Darwin wiped an eye and reached out slowly to touch Cornetto's nameplate on the fence. It's a sad story, Shazza. I, I don't... He seemed to choke back a sob. Sharon touched his shoulder tenderly. I'm so sorry, she said. We, we don't need to talk about it. Australian Charles Darwin sniffed and ran his fingers softly across the raised letters on the plate. Just so you know, though, Sharon began again. It's Sharon. You're right, said Australian Charles Darwin briskly. There's no need to dwell on these sorts of things. Life goes on, and so should the tour. Let me take you around to see the bunyip pit. There's fuck all in there, but it's a bloody good pit. So they walked on, Australian Charles Darwin happily pointing out other parts of the petting zoo and Centre for Evolutionary Studies, and pausing only a few times to dab his eyes with a handkerchief. Sharon spent the rest of the day watching the cricket while Australian Charles Darwin hid himself in the kitchen, whipping up something pungent. It was worth the wait, though, when he ladled a steaming portion of curry into a bowl at dinner. It's delicious, Sharon gushed over a mouthful of potato and carrot. She took another spoonful and chewed lovingly. Is this local beef? She asked, dipping in for another mouthful. Beef? Australian Charles Darwin laughed. Nah, love, it's homegrown roo. Sunday began with a solitary primal scream, and Sharon tumbled out of bed with a start. But the day continued largely without other incident. Sharon didn't think she'd be out of stomach any more of the petting zoo and Centre for Evolutionary Studies, so she settled for exploring Narangong by foot. First to Ruth's for a Kitchener bun and a cappuccino, then around town to admire the many beautiful examples of classic Victorian bungalows and hay bale-shaped rubbish bins before a long afternoon of pints and cricket at the Rear Admiral. By the time play ended for the day, Sharon and her four pints felt they could make it through the night that stood between them and a meeting with Samuel P. Marshman Esquire of Number 11 First Street.
in Narangong, South Australia, first thing the next morning. She left a pile of pillows on the floor by her bed and fell asleep. She awoke the next morning to another scream and rolled with a start off the bed and onto the pile of pillows. She hoped that chimpanzees' renowned grasp of sign language enabled them to understand the gesture she made as she dressed for a much-awaited meeting with Mr Marshman. Number 11 First Street was a small, pleasant Victorian bungalow with a red brick path, roses by the gate, and a sign on the door that said, Closed. Upon closer inspection, Sharon saw a piece of paper tucked into the jam next to the door handle. The handle jiggled when she reached for the letter, then fell right off the door. Sharon looked around guiltily, but no one was around to witness her act of inadvertent vandalism. After a few unsuccessful tries to reattach the handle, she left it sitting on the nearest windowsill and unfolded the note. Shazza, it said. It's Sharon, she grumbled. Will reading has been postponed on account of me not being here. Please return at same time tomorrow. Samuel P. Marshman, number 11, First Street, Narangong. South Australia. Sharon neatly folded the note and left it under the doorknob on the sill. The next morning, after a customary scream, a roll onto the floor and hot breakfast, Sharon returned to number 11. A shiny new doorknob had been mounted on the door and used to support another note. Shazza, it's fucking Sharon, she said aloud. Will reading has been postponed on account of me not being here. Please return at same time tomorrow. Samuel P. Marshman, number 11, First Street, Narangong. South Australia. It's... it's the same fucking note. Sharon looked around in suspicion. Perhaps this was some kind of test. No, she was alone. She crumpled the note and threw it angrily at the door. The following day, Sharon made it halfway up the path before she noticed a piece of paper tucked into the door jam. It was creased all over, as if someone had crumpled it into a ball and then smoothed it out again. She didn't bother to read it. Australian Charles Darwin took pity on her and offered to buy her dinner at the Rear Admiral. Crab. Can't go wrong, he said. Are you sure? Sharon had glanced at a map before leaving England and, although she'd found Narangong hard to locate, recalled it being hundreds of kilometres from the nearest ocean. Fresh, he said encouragingly. I had it last time and it was bloody delish. Sharon grimaced at the rest of the menu and figured she didn't have a whole lot to lose. Crab then. The chimp was halfway through his scream before he realised Sharon wasn't in the bed. He squinted through the glass and gave another shriek just to make sure she wasn't hiding on the far side. He nibbled the end of his pipe and leapt to the nearest branch to peer in the bathroom window. There, and by the presence of the pillow next to her she'd been there most of the night, was Sharon, arms clutching the toilet bowl and hair sticking to her pale, sweaty face. The chimp gave a half-hearted hoot and swung away. You all right, Jazza? Asked Australian Charles Darwin from the bathroom door. It's sh- Sharon bent over the toilet bowl again. I don't reckon I could pronounce it that way without a lot of beer and a half full bucket. Said Australian Charles Darwin from the doorway. You, uh, you gonna be alright? I, I think it's food poisoning. Sharon managed, her face pressed against the cool of the tile floor. It must have been that crab. Australian Charles Darwin nodded. Funny that. Happened the last time I had it too. A dry wind whipped wisps of hay around Sharon's ankles as she waited for the bus out front of the BP. A few minutes later, she watched the hay bale-shaped bins whiz by the windows on the way out of town, then give way to hay bale-shaped hay bales on the road to Adelaide. Marshman would call at some point, 
but until then she'd be ensconced in a relatively modern hotel, or a motel perhaps, with food that didn't threaten to turn her inside out, and an alarm that went, beep. He could bloody well call when he was ready. Nara's legendary rolling hills gave way to the plainest plains, devoid of rain and looking the same. She must have regretted her decision to leave behind South Australia's tidiest town, its quaint Victorian bungalows and tastefully situated public works, because she closed her eyes and began to doze. An all too familiar screeching tore Sharon from her slumber. She looked through the window next to her with horror, expecting to see the gaping mouth of an emotionally troubled ape. What she saw instead was four petrol pumps and a sign for Balfour's pies as the bus squealed to a halt. Ladies and gents, the driver's voice crackled over the speakers. We'll be stopping for a bit here in Taylor Bend, long enough for you to visit the toilet and have a smoke. We'll be leaving in ten minutes. Sharon yawned again and made her way to the front of the bus. She stepped out into crackling, desiccating heat, but it still felt good to stretch her legs. Oi! A voice called out across the car park. Oi, Shazza! Sharon squinted in the bright sunlight at a small bandy-legged figure making his way towards her. Excuse me. He started when he got a little closer. Your name's Shazza. Sharon closed her eyes against the continuing indignities and opened them to stare down at the petrol station attendant. A badge on his shirt suggested that his name was Mark. No, she replied archly. It's Sharon. Mark nodded. All right then, too bad for you because I've got a message for a Sheila named Shazza from some shonky lawyer in Nara. He turned and began to walk away. Wait, Sharon called out. I th- I think that message is for me. No, love. Messages for Shazza. Bloke on the phone said so himself. Yes, yes, but it is for me, Mark. Mark looked back sceptically. You said your name was Sharon, but I really do think it's for me. Your name's not Sharon, then? No, she began. No, I'm... She'd been resisting all this time, the mere change in a syllable, in some desperate attempt to retain a sense of self in this foreign land. The locals' apparent need to alter her name to fit their image had grated against the sharp edges of her conflicted, troubled identity. Now she was forced to choose. She could accept the change, embrace her local identity, and find out why she was in this bloody country in the first place. Or she could stand on principle, return to the bus and perhaps to England, ignorant of what might have come. Like many other creatures who'd washed ashore in Australia and been faced with the same choice, she could adapt or die. It was a monotraumatic evolution born of the insurmountable will to live in a harsh bloody country. It was as true blue as Malcolm Bloody Fraser eating a lamington at a John Farnham concert. Fucking oath! Shazza. It was easier than she'd expected. She beamed at him. Fucking Shazza, she said again. Yeah, righto. Suit yourself. Follow me, Shaz. What a ripping journey of self-actualization. That's all we've got time for today. We'll be back next time with the second half of It's Sharon. Until then, take it easy.